This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. My name's Aaron Miller, I'm a travel writer, and this episode, we are going to walk a thousand miles through three countries, across deserts and mountains, and through voodoo ceremonies, witches' camps, and lots, lots more. It's an amazing story. Are you ready? Let's go. Taking us on this adventure is travel author Robert Martineau, whose book of this story is called Waypoints, A Journey on Foot. And it was recently cited by the Washington Post as one of the best travel books of 2021. It's incredibly well written and researched, and more than just an account of his personal journey, it's also a detailed account of the history and culture of this fascinating and beautiful part of the world. So the book's called Waypoints, A Journey on Foot, and you can also connect with Rob directly on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook at Rob underscore Martineau. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-E-A-U. He also has an amazing plant-based nutrition company stroke nonprofit called The Tribe, which you should also really check out. The Instagram page is very cool, at the underscore tribe underscore way. So we're just about to get started, but before we do, If you can, please consider becoming a patron of the show by going to patreon.com forward slash armchair explorer podcast. It takes a total of about 40 hours to put an episode together. The sponsorship covers my costs, but it doesn't really leave me anything. And the reality is I need to make a little something something in order to keep going. So... If you enjoy this show and you think that this message, our message of love for the outdoors, caring for this planet and living your life to the full is a message worth spreading, then please buy me a pint. For five bucks a month, about three quid, less than the cost of a single pint, in fact, you'll get ad-free shows. Buy me two pints at 10 bucks a month and you'll get ad-free shows plus membership to our exclusive Explorers community with lots of benefit, including monthly travel vouchers delivered right to your inbox and lots, lots more. So if you're enjoying the show and you can afford it, I'm waiting at the bar. Please consider me for your next round. Just hit up the website, armchair-explorer.com. There's a button there. The show notes for this episode has a link or head over to patreon.com forward slash armchair explorer podcast to find out more. Thank you for whatever you can do. But for now, let's get back to the story because Rob is just about to take his first step on a thousand mile walk that will change his life. And that change was something that he desperately needed. I'd gone to university. I'd come out of university not really knowing what to do and became a lawyer. So I went to law school and I got funded through law school by a law firm. And when I started working at that law firm, it was probably the first time in my life I'd really thought about how I was spending my time. I began to feel quite unhappy. Um, I was feeling like I was almost like locked in in an environment that I didn't want to be in. I was... Often working 80, 100 hour weeks, I was eating three meals a day in the office canteen, I was barely outside, and I was living in a way that wasn't doing me good. And actually, I was shutting myself off from things that were really important to me, whether that's being in fresh air or 
having some connection with natural world. And I suppose alongside that, I was partying pretty hard. It was just exhausting and it wasn't healthy. And I'd always been really drawn, I suppose, the idea of a long journey, like a long walk as a form of therapy. Um, and I think just from the books I'd read, even going back to like Thoreau and some John Muir, some of the great like American writers. And so I began fantasizing um, about like a long walking trip and essentially seeing it as a way that I might be able to reset my life and put me on a different path in a sense, give me space that I felt I really needed. He began writing a list, a list of all the things he wanted in his life, all the things that would get him out of the rut he'd found himself in, all the things that would reset the course of his life to something happier, healthier, more connected and more meaningful to him. He describes himself at that time as floating without aim, drifting towards an invisible madness. I love that, an invisible madness. That's what it feels like, doesn't it? So he began writing. He wrote page after page, crossing things out, scrolling over them, writing into the dark and through the night. He says he was in a kind of mania. He was possessed by this sudden clarity, this sudden knowing of exactly what he needed to do. He got up the next morning and condensed it down to just a few things. No internet, no electricity, no iPhone. Live outside. No more than 40 possessions. One pair of shoes. No news. Walk for miles every day. Only ever black coffee, water, beer. Cook by the fire. Write each day. No motors, forests, deserts, mountains. One rucksack. The idea for an adventure, a big, life-changing adventure, crystallized in his mind. He would take a journey, a journey on foot. And in the writing of that list, what he realized later was that that journey had already begun. The walk went through three countries in West Africa. So it started in Accra, which is the capital of Ghana, and went to the far north of Ghana to a place called Tenzug, and then down through Togo and Benin, finishing at a settlement called Wida, which is an amazing place. It has a very sad history in terms of its role in the slave trade, but also is a really sort of positive cultural center now, a sort of spiritual center for traditional West African religions. I'd read lots of books by writers from that part of the world, a lot from Nigeria, which is kind of next door to Benin, and writers like Shelley or Ben Okri in particular. And because of all the books I'd read and the stories I'd heard from that region, it was a place I hoped to travel to. I kind of took on a place in my imagination through those stories. And so I ended up yeah, choosing to walk there. It's just like such a special place to walk. And actually the support I got along the way was like nowhere I've ever been. It was a really humbling experience. Everywhere I went, I was given a place to sleep. I was given food. I was asked dozens of times a day whether I needed a hand if I was lost. Often I was lost. but And I, it was a really amazing place to do that kind of journey. But I think when I set out, I was probably also quite naive. When I started thinking about the trip, I was like 25, 26. And when I started walking, I was 27. And I think I was also a little bit lost. And I was drawn to the idea of maybe like, needing some sort of rite of passage or something that would test me and give me a kind of physical challenge, but also maybe just prove myself to myself, something that in my mind would be hard. And through it, I'd come through as someone stronger who maybe knew more about themselves and knew more about life and was self-sufficient in a way I hadn't been before. I've always been interested in the idea of walking pilgrimage. 
it's this kind of really ancient thing that happens across so many different cultures. And it's something so simple, the idea that walking from A to B through that process and that journey you can have as well as making the physical journey some sort of other transformation not like religious in the sense that i don't go to like church or temple or whatever on the weekends or i don't like practice um, religion um, actively in my kind of day-to-day life but certainly for me personally i was kind of looking to connect with a journey like that and with a transformation like that and that kind of drew me towards different spiritual centers in the region i was in and part of west africa i was in is a particularly, I would say, like rich ecosystem of different religions. You have a very kind of strong Christianity. It's practiced there, often a lot of Pentecostalism. There's various forms of Islam that are very strong as well. And then there's a whole ecosystem of traditional African religions. The most well-known probably in the UK, at least, would be the voodoo religion, which originated in Benin. And so I was definitely aware of, I suppose, the region as kind of center for different spiritual traditions and it was part of what drew me there and as along the way I was fortunate to participate in different celebrations and go into different religious sites and kind of interact with those spiritual traditions. It wasn't a traditional pilgrimage, he wasn't doing it to honor a particular deity or spiritual tradition, rather it was a pilgrimage of exploration. He was seeking to understand this part of the world that he'd fallen in love with by delving into the depths of its soul, literally into its beliefs and the deepest, most sacred parts of his culture. He was hoping at the outset that such a journey would inspire a deeper sense of his own spirituality and place in the world. It would provide a waypoint to guide him, and it did. But it provided much more than that too. He prepared for a year, he saved money, he got fit, and then he flew to Accra, the capital of Ghana, and started walking. I'd been preparing for the trip for so long, and suddenly I was like setting off, and it was a really, it's quite a strange moment, because you can't really be prepared for it, and you feel a bit self-conscious. Accra is a really modern, big city, and I was trying to sort of get out of the city, onto the road, and off the road into the forests. And it was quite a disorienting experience. Um, I think I was suddenly walking with a, a pack that was really heavy. I was, yeah, a bit lost. Like physically, I realized quite quickly it was going to be really hard. And I remember feeling really nervous the first night. I stayed in this little guest house in a, a small kind of highway town the first night. And I remember feeling in my own mind, this is like suddenly it felt like quite an enormous thing I was doing. It was like, shit, you know, I quit everything. I left my job. I left all of the, everything I, I had going for me. And now I'm in a kind of roadside guest house in southern Ghana. Don't really have a clue on this. I remember just feeling, God, what have I done? <laughs> but then when I, I sort of got into the more like forest section where I was walking on tracks and there weren't really cars around, I found it physically really difficult. I was even throwing up. I think the humidity was really high. My stomach was trashed. And it was hard, you know, slipping in the mud, there's kind of thorns and bugs and all the stuff that you get in forest. I definitely found that really physically difficult and emotionally difficult, but at least I felt I was kind of on the way. And one of the things I think that's so kind of powerful about a long or a walking pilgrimage, a long walk like that, is that, I suppose, simplicity of life. All you can do is walk on to the next village or turn back to the last village. You know, you don't really have too much choice. And actually that not having too much choice, simplifying life right down and engaging with a rhythm and a routine that's really simple in terms of what's coming at you and what choices you have, 
I think is one of the most kind of powerful or valuable elements of that kind of experience. I think that kind of sense of not being ready for the landscape or the challenge kind of fell away day by day and I began to feel stronger and more at home. As he left Accra and entered the forest, he says he felt as if he was crossing a boundary. There was no going back now. But it was hard, much harder than he expected. He was walking 20 to 30 miles a day, village to village. My body seemed to break down, he writes. I sweated so much, my eyes stung and my face turned white with salt. But the deeper he went into the forest, the further from that boundary he became, the more he attuned to his environment. These are the ancestral lands of the Ashanti people, one of the great kingdoms of pre-colonial Africa. And he was heading for their traditional capital, a city called Kumasi, 150 miles northwest of Accra. And he arrived at the perfect time because an ancient religious festival called the Adai was just about to start. And it would be his first encounter with that spiritual side of East Africa, that true indigenous culture he'd been hoping to find. The Adai happens every six weeks in Kumasi, and it's essentially a celebration of ancestral traditions. So part of the main kind of element of the celebration is that the priest is essentially mounted by a spirit, and he will, uh, different spirits will inhabit him through the evening, and through them he conveys kind of messages. There would be lots of drumming, and then... Nano Bass, the priest, would come out wearing his kind of normal clothes. And then someone would start dancing in the crowd or getting more into it. And you feel the energy growing. And then the minute, the moment the kind of spirit is upon him, someone chucks a cloak on him. And he actually, it was amazing. He kind of almost caught it on his head. So he was spinning and then it, it sort of flowed onto him. And at that moment, that kind of signifies that he's now inhabited by a spirit. And at that point, he's then in his mind and in the mind of, you know, everyone there, a different kind of being. And some people get really into it and are dancing. Some people are having what I would describe as a kind of out-of-body experience. So they are visibly in an altered state of consciousness. So their eyes are rolling back in their head. And then it finished at dawn with a kind of almost like a ritual bathing to everyone. He pours water over everyone's head. It's just amazing to see. I mean, the dancing, the masquerades, there's a really rich ecosystem of stuff that surrounds the, the worship. And actually, just visually, it's so, so beautiful to see it. And the music's amazing. And so it's really great that it's kind of so strong out there. He attended the ceremony on a rocky outcrop in the Madonna township in the northern parts of the city. It began at midnight and lasted until the dawn, drums playing throughout, their rhythm incessant, infectious. And as the priest Nana Abbas went into trance, inhabiting the spirit of different deities, as they believe, speaking in riddles and tongues to the crowd, others fell into trance too, falling on the floor, shaking, he writes, as if charged with an electrical current. And it made him think, however alien and strange and even unnerving a practice like that might appear to us, spiritual possession and trance, he writes, is actually one of the most prevalent forms of worship in the world. And he wondered if we are here in the West in denying this aspect of ourselves, also perhaps denying a core component of what it means to be human, that we are supposed to step outside of oneself, as he writes, and become, for a time, something more than ourselves. He poured the water over his head, bathed in the sunrise, and began to walk again.
This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. The forest section ends at a place called Tano, which is the start of a river, um, the source of a river. And there's a, a monastery there, which I stayed in for a week or so. It's kind of right on the edge of northern Ghana, and it changes quite dramatically between south and north. The south is much greener. It's a much more kind of tropical climate. Culture is, from a religious perspective, predominantly Christian. It's a shanty in terms of cultural tradition. Going north, the landscape begins to dry. There's fewer churches, and there's gradually more mosques. What people are wearing changes. And so gradually, one of the cool things about walking is you see this in very kind of real time, as it were. You're seeing it in very like gradual day by day. You're, you pick up lots of cues in the landscape because, you know, you've nothing to do but kind of look around. And so you're seeing it change kind of slowly and you're gradually like lowering yourself into it. And I think walking as well, it became a much more physically grueling experience because as it got drier, the distances between the settlements increased. And so I'd be walking 20, 30, 40 miles sometimes. And I'd have to reach the settlements to get water. I was camping almost exclusively. So I would, at the end of each day, I would pitch my tent. I would take off my the clothes I would, I'd been walking in. I'd rinse them, set them to dry on my tent, have some food, and then I'd sleep. Often I'd wake really early, so I'd avoid the heat. So I sometimes would get up at like 3 a.m. I'd walk for kind of two, three hours in the dark. It was a really liberating feeling. You also have a little bit of apprehension, or I did, when it's dark, because it's such a kind of primal thing to be scared of the dark. And then like really looking forward to the dawn. And when that dawn breaks, it's a really powerful feeling, feeling like looking forward to the sunrise like that and feeling that the sunrise is going to have all these practical benefits for you. You're just going to be able to see better and you're no longer be be feeling nervous and then be walking for those hours from like 6 a.m to like 8 30 a.m was so nice because it's cool and you know you're kind of into it and then it would get really hot and it gets really hard when it's hot and often it's no distraction it's kind of like desert savannah that first bit of, of northern ghana it's like dry savannah grasses basically you'd see a few trees and then there's clouds maybe a cattle truck would pass every hour and you might see a herder but it's quite monotonous when you're walking and that is hard. I found it hard because mentally, you know, much to distract you. But I also, at times, loved it more than any other period of walking. 
I write a lot about kind of flow states and getting into that kind of zone. And certainly that section of the walk was when I felt that the most, where I just felt there was so little outside of, you know, myself, the trail I was walking and the rhythm of the days. It really was simplifying in terms of my life. The desert is the land of the Fulani herdsmen. They are the largest nomadic pastoral community on earth. Some 20 million of them are spread across this region, many of whom still migrate seasonally with their livestock as they have for centuries. And before he began, he had romanticized the desert and the lives of these nomads and saw in his own journey some similarity that for a short time at least, he would be living their life or something close to it and therefore sharing a bond. But then... A young herder passed him, and he realized how naive he'd been. He writes, The herder walks in the dust in the wake of his cattle. His animals are gaunt with ribs that look like famine and great long horns. They move wearily in the heat. As I get closer, I see the herder is young, perhaps no older than 15. I see in the second our eyes cross how little I know of his life. He will likely experience hunger, thirst, and violence that I've been sheltered from all my life. His people may die of illnesses that mine are cured from without trouble. The rains could fail, his cattle will perish, and he will face ruin. But I'm starting to see, too, the things he has which I lack. He can fend for himself in the land he lives. He's part of a community that retains bonds that have collapsed in mine. He goes everywhere by foot, and his body is strong. He has people's story to give him meaning. He has a clear path ahead of him. I love that. It's beautiful writing. But there's something else he'd romanticized too. Because although the overwhelming majority of the religious and spiritual practices he witnessed on his journey were positive, they weren't all positive. Because he was just about to enter the witch camp. I arrived at a place called Tamale, which is kind of the main like, large town in northern Ghana, one of the main large towns. And I stopped in this guest house, which is actually attached to a Roman Catholic learning center, basically. And there was a Polish priest there who kind of ran the center. And then he told me about this place called Gambaga, and he described it as a witch camp. And essentially there are, I believe there were, like six of these kind of camps in northern Ghana. And I stopped by on the way, and it's pretty horrendous. They look like villages, but there's a belief that the chief of Gambaga has this kind of hereditary power to essentially neutralize the negative power of witches and essentially to, to make, mean that they aren't able to exercise their kind of evil powers. But what in practice happens is there are dozens of often elderly women who are living in an effective prison in this kind of isolated or remote village. And they have often been brought to this place as a way to kind of get rid of them, accused of being a witch, of having done some harm to member, uh, someone else in their home community. And essentially they're being ostracized and given over to this chief of Gambaga who essentially presides over this community. And there's some very strange kind of rituals that accompany their admission into the camp, including like killing a chicken and chucking it in the air and seeing which way it dies is an indication of whether the, the woman is a, a witch or not. It's a very troubling place and there's obviously all sorts of issues that come out of that one. There's of women, there's cultural traditions being abused. It's a very kind of complex cluster of stuff, but very, very sad seeing a place like that 
still exist and essentially a form of exploitation of women that has happened sadly all through the world certainly in the uk there was a terrible tradition of persecution of women on the basis of witchcraft but in northern ghana for whatever reason there still is that taking place albeit in quite isolated pockets the first woman i meet he writes rama arrived at the camp a few weeks ago a month before she arrived she says a child in her village fell ill when the boy didn't get better, the child's mother said she'd seen her in her dreams, that she was the one causing the sickness. Her husband came to her hut with the other men from the village. They went through her room, throwing her belongings to the floor. They found a beetle. They said she'd trapped the child's soul in the insect, that she was slowly killing him. They beat her and brought her here. And once you arrive at a camp like Gambargo, the pure fact of being there alone makes you a witch. No trial, no recourse, no complaint. You are ostracized from your community. There's nowhere else to go. It's estimated upwards of a thousand women still reside in these camps today. The desert lasted for 150 miles. Near the village of Yapai, he passed out on the middle of the road and was rescued by an old man who gave him water and lifted him onto the bed of a passing truck. He was too weak to do it himself. And that truck carried him the last miles to town. At the Caliphon Shrine, he took part in a divination ceremony. The diviner, a man called Akakaya, threw bones on the floor and offered him advice from the spirits, as he still does for his community to this day. Be patient, he said. The moon travels slowly around the earth, but it always completes its journey. Remember the moon. And though the desert was hard, it also taught him much. In its silence, he was reminded of something Jack Kerouac called the roaring of the diamond wisdom, which he quotes in the book. A great shh reminding you of something you seem to have forgotten in the stress of your days since birth. In its simplicity of life, walking, eating, sleeping, and nothing else, he found freedom, an antidote to that invisible madness, that fear and uncertainty and pull from the present which he had sought to escape. At the end of the desert, he climbed the stone path to the Tenzog Monastery, a beautiful earthen building and one of the most sacred sites in the country, high on a hilltop ringed by baobab trees, and he looked out. The mountains were ahead. It was a time to rest, reflect, recover. But soon he would be walking again out of Ghana through northern Togo and into Benin. Benin had always been a place I just wanted to visit since I was, well, for years, basically. It's such a remarkable place in terms of the different mix of traditions, like visually or the dancing, the masquerades, the history. It's, it's got this culture, I guess, and also a really tragic history in terms of the slave trade. So it was one of the kind of real centers of the slave trade where obviously Europeans would come to that coast and enslave people and then ship them to the States or to Southern America. And so it had this history and this cultural present that I was just so intrigued to understand more about. And so I definitely felt I was getting into the kind of heart of the journey. I arrived in a place called Savalu, which is a small town in central Benin. And I've been walking probably nonstop for like six or seven days to get there. And it turned out that while I was there, there was a big kind of festival going on in Savalu. It was called the Festival of the Yams. It was to celebrate the harvest. And that was a kind of traditional festival that happened. But alongside that, there was a meeting of this council of kind of traditional leaders, like regional kings, who are no longer heads of state in terms of their own countries, but are still 
kind of kings in in terms of their kind of provinces within the sort of post-colonial state. And there was lots of traditional dancing and ceremony around sort of cutting the first yam. So the idea is it's like celebrating the first yam pulled from the ground and stuff like the American ambassador was there. So there was some kind of quite like formal stuff. And I attended a lot of that, but then there was also stuff that, that the American ambassador wasn't at, which was the more, I suppose, the, the more like visceral kind of elements to it. And a lot of that revolved around figures called the Revenants. They're essentially um, masquerades. And the Revenants means they're kind of returning dead. And so it was essentially a voodoo ceremony in that it was led by the group, the, the local voodoo temple. They have quite like visually striking costumes and there's a whole set of taboos around the interactions between the revenants and people in the community for example you're not allowed to forbidden to kind of touch their cloth and each one would have like a minder with a stick but they would often chase the crowds and so you'd have these kind of stampedes and with these figures wearing like masks some with like antlers coming out would be chasing people around all the young men would be kind of almost like daring themselves to get closer and so you got this quite like intense atmosphere. There were hundreds, perhaps thousands of people watching. The kids were like climbing up all the trees. So you have like these mango trees and the kids would be sort of watching from the branches. There's a, a kind of dust square in the middle. And as the costumes got more and more elaborate, the dancing got more intense. And then the kind of climax of the ceremony was them bringing out the figure in very heavy like black robes but also with a mask and a hat which had all sorts of animal bones and like iron pieces attached to it and he was essentially taken to the center of the circle and then this cow had been brought out before and I hadn't fully sort of realized what would happen and the cow was kind of lying on the floor and essentially four kind of guys lifted up the cow and then someone slipped his neck and the blood was kind of drained over the seated masquerade and I remember being quite frightened but it was just the nearest thing I've been to it would be like a football match that feels like it's about to turn and you know you've just got a really intense atmosphere it's like a party atmosphere a lot of people have been drinking there's lots of people there and it's suddenly you've got like people with knives like cutting throats of animals it sounds quite like brutal to talk about it but then actually everyone shared that meal you know that was then shared afterwards no bit of it went to waste and it was part of revering you know customs of people but also a way to kind of bring the community together that ceremony affected him not just because it was intense and it was there were points when he was physically shaking partly with nerves and partly with the energy that was coming from the dancers the revenants that was spilling into the crowd just as the blood from their sacrifice spilled into the dusty ground at his feet but it affected him also because it made him realize something Voodoo, here in the West at least, has a reputation of being witchcraft or devil worship, when of course it's nothing like that. Its basis is in African religious ceremonies just like these that were brought to the New World by slaves and practiced in secret as a means of keeping those religions alive. Calling it black magic was simply another kind of chains. And what he realized was that despite his ancestors, the British and others' best attempts to wipe these practices off the face of the earth, they had failed and the slaves had won. Because here it was, still intact, still strong. And here he was, the great-great-grandson of those men of that era, witnessing it still. Not as an invader, but as a traveler, a visitor, 
a pilgrim, a guest, trying to understand it, to respect it and learn from what he saw, which he did. He'd walked close to a thousand miles and the end was now in sight. But there was one pilgrimage left on his journey and it was perhaps the most important of all. It's a really strange finishing, to be honest. So the, the walk ended by the sea. So I started, essentially did a big arc from Accra, starting on the coast in Ghana and then finishing at Ouida on the coast in Benin. And it's a very poignant place. Ouida has this tragic history in, in terms of slave trade. It was one of the most prolifically used slave ports in um, West Africa. And so tens of thousands of people were kidnapped, essentially, and many murdered. So it has this deeply tragic history. But today it's a very kind of peaceful, quite sleepy seaside town. And there's actually a track called the Route des Esclaves, so it's French speaking, the track memorializes that journey that slaves were taken on on the final walk to the sea. And so it's a very poignant place. And so I walked that route. And then there's a big kind of arch that is on the beach. And that's the kind of end point. And that is called the door of no return. Um, and again, it's the kind of final memorial of the various memorials along that route. And then beyond that, there's just a huge stretch of sand. And yeah, I just went for a swim and then walk back into town. It's always, I think, in, in some ways, an anticlimax. There wasn't some big fanfare or any big like, moment. I think like gradually it, it kind of sunk in that I was kind of suspending perhaps some of the larger questions. You know, how am I going to make money? How am I going to... All those kind of things. And suddenly those began to come back into my mind as I neared the end. You begin to think, what next? You know, ultimately, that's sad to be kind of leaving the lifestyle of the journey behind and heading back to, I didn't know quite what then, but heading back into something that wasn't as simple as walking and camping each day. I suppose you, you feel a sense of satisfaction because it's something you've worked so hard to make happen and you've kind of essentially thrown caution to the wind a bit. And I felt really lucky to have had the experience and I felt really happy to finish the journey but also sad that I was going back home. It was a fitting end to the trip. The route of slaves, as it's known, traces the two and a half miles slaves were marched from the fort where they were held after being taken from their villages to the beach where they would board ships for the New World. In two centuries, two million men and women and children made this walk, and none returned. As Rob walked the trail to the sea, he passed the market where they were branded and sold, the tree of forgetfulness, which is now a monument, where they were ordered to circle it in order to symbolically wipe their minds and memories of who they were and where they came from. He passed the darkness rooms where they were held without light for days, weeks and months before the next slave ship arrived. And then finally, now on his last steps of his long journey, through the gate of no return, where once slaves boarded ships, shackled and chained. And as he crossed through that gate and walked to the sea, the journey now complete, he realized that these lines, this path that he'd been walking here in his final steps in the five months of footsteps that had come before, that path connected him to this place, not as a tourist or even a pilgrim, but in the shared history with those who were taken and those who remained, in the legacy of what had come before, in the echo of that legacy which can still be heard to this day. It's obviously such an important part of the culture and the history of those places in terms of the 
I suppose particularly the slave trade and the colonial occupation, exploitation, and obviously those things bind the history of my people to the history and the present of those places. And certainly it was something that wasn't like on my mind all the time I was walking. It wasn't the reason I wanted to go there. But as I walked, I was passing places that were slave markets that I'd read about. I was passing places where my countrymen burned to the ground. And walking, you feel that sense of history and that interaction. I learned so much that I hadn't known about how the British had interacted in those countries and the French. I've got a French name, I obviously have some French roots, but the French in Togo and Benin. And I think it is so important that we to connect with that history, front up to it, face up to it, because I didn't know so much that stuff, I didn't learn about it at school really. And actually it's such an important part of the present as well, because there is such an imbalance. I think in 100, 200 years time, it may be the thing that our great, great grandchildren look at us and they're like, how are you sitting where you were in London, living the way you were and someone in Central African Republic had such a hard life and how were you just buying stuff at Primark or Adidas and not caring, not doing more? We don't really do anything. And actually, a lot of that, the imbalance is as a result of exploitation that happened in the past. There is a lot to confront. You know, the life chances of someone who was born in, say, one of the villages I stayed with in northern Ghana, in terms of the chances of child surviving past the age of five compared to the same in London is, like, vastly different. And it, that shouldn't be the case. And something is wrong. That's what the pilgrimage taught him, in part. It taught him about history and his place in it. It altered his ideas of what Africa is. It inspired him. I came to see, he writes, how fully the ideas which were rooted in the religions and folklores of the people that I walked among, conceptions of community, healing, ancestors, nature, had changed how I see the world. He had come looking for the answers in himself, he thought that in the challenge of walking each day, he would cleanse himself somehow of that invisible madness, that aimless floating he was running from, that he would do it. He would find the answers to find himself. But in the end, it was the place, it was Africa that gave him those answers instead. And it happened step by step. The idea of a walking pilgrimage was never about a destination. It was always about a process, I guess, and about a different routine, a different way of life. And through the act of step-by-step, step, walking each day, shutting out so many inputs that were coming at me before, consciously living in a much simpler way, that that would begin to work on my body and work on my mind in a way that would help me to sort of feel better and to feel that I was connecting with things that I'd shut myself off from before, whether it's the natural world, with the past, with the land. And because walking, you know, you are following paths that people are born into the ground before you. You have so much space. All you have is to take the next step. That's the only action you ever have. And then it's when you reach your destination, it's putting up your tent, it's rinsing your clothes, it's making your food, it's sleep, it's repeat. And that kind of rhythm for me was really what pilgrimage walking pilgrimage was about and what I hoped and what I did find was that it enabled space to open up that hadn't been there before and I, I began to confront things that I hadn't really registered as problems in my life. Dad died when I was very small and never really kind of confronted that or kind of dealt with that and 
as the journey went on, began to sort of see that it was much more about that for me and trying to kind of come to terms with that. And I, I think walking is such a universal thing. Like you hear this from people who take walking pilgrimages all over the world, that it, it, it somehow it can enable that kind of coming to terms with loss and ability to connect with things that are missing. And I don't really understand how it works, <laughs> but I try in waypoints to draw, I suppose, or connect with some of the ideas of people smarter than me who've looked at that and thought about it. And that was for me one of the most interesting things about writing about it was trying to understand how something as simple as a walk can be this kind of life-changing thing. He finishes the book making sandcastles with his grandfather. It's a childhood memory. His grandfather was a mathematician and they would spend hours making these huge elaborate structures on the beach. But then inevitably towards the end of the day, the sea would come in and wash those castles away. And as a child, he would always despair at this, all this work and suddenly it's gone, it's lost and he has nothing to show for it. But his grandfather would just sit, smoking his pipe, smiling, staring out to sea. And I think he ended the book with this scene because the walk was like that too. He didn't achieve anything by it. He didn't have anything tangible to show for it at the end. It too would soon wash away with the sea, with the busyness of his life and the city that he was returning to. But it mattered still despite that. He didn't go back to being a lawyer. He started a nutrition company called Tribe, which raises money to fight human trafficking. He runs more. He spends more time outdoors. He changed his life. He found his waypoint. All our journeys fade eventually. All our lives are washed away by the sea. But the changes we make within ourselves, although they may be made of sand, are castles too. They guard against that fear and uncertainty, that pull from the present and what matters to us most. And in doing so, they guide us and others. They are a beacon. They are a waypoint. That's what his grandfather knew. That is why we walk. That is our pilgrimage. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for taking us on this adventure. The book of his walk is called Waypoints, A Journey on Foot. It's one of the best travel books of 2021, according to the Washington Post and me. There's loads more in it that we couldn't fit in this episode. Of course, it's incredibly well written and researched. I really loved it, and I think you will too. I also want to mention his company, Tribe, which is what The Walk brought him to in many ways. They make plant-based nutrition products and are heavily involved in the fight against human trafficking. It's an awesome company with a really, really positive mission. To date, they've raised over £500,000 for that cause, almost a million dollars. Check it out on Instagram at the underscore tribe underscore way. It's a great page to follow. Remember, if you're also enjoying the show, please consider becoming a patron of it and supporting it by heading over to patreon.com forward slash armchair explorer podcast, or just checking out the show notes of this episode. There's a link there too. It takes a long time to put one of these episodes together, and I love doing it. The sponsorship covers my costs, but it doesn't leave anything for little old me. So if you enjoy the show and you think that this message, our message of love for the outdoors, caring for this planet, and living your life to the full is a message worth spreading, then please... Buy me a pint, five bucks a month, less than the cost of a single pint will get you ad-free episodes. Ten bucks a month will also get you monthly travel vouchers and access to our exclusive Explorers community. 
Check it out at patreon.com forward slash armchair explorer podcast. Today's sound editor is Mike Comber. His song Rummage opens every episode. He's an amazing musician. I've been a fan of his work for years. So it's a huge honor to have him working on this show. He has two musical projects I'm a big fan about and I'd love you to check out too. The Sweet Chap, which is his left field electronica project and the Dead Skin Sessions, which is all out rock and roll. He has an amazing voice. He writes brilliant songs. He's a great performer. And you can find out more on bandcamp.com. Just search up those band names, The Sweet Chap and Dead Skin Sessions. Or you can head over to Facebook at Sweet Chap and at Dead Skin Sessions. Check it out. I think you're going to love it. Lizzie Goldsmith also worked on this production. So thank you to her. She's an awesome writer and podcast producer in her own right. And you can check out more of her work at lizziegoldsmith.com. Last but not least, thank you to you guys. Keep putting one foot in front of the other. Keep walking your pilgrimage, whatever that may be, and never be afraid to live your life to the full. Because the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive. <laughs>